0: Well, y'all, uh, you know, we have a, a just a light and, you know, lighthearted, refreshing sort of, you know, tiptoe through the tulips kind of uh, topic for this summer with the book of Job. I mean, it just, uh, you know, it's one of those, uh, the, it's, it's sort of the cotton candy of uh, biblical studies, I think is, is what you might uh, describe it as, and so... It just gets deeper and deeper uh, as we as we keep going along here I'm just the messenger um, I, I promise to read a lot of scripture today so if, if you get upset don't get upset at me you know there are other people uh, that you can get upset at um, when uh, when the title of the, the lecture is God on trial you already know that uh, you know things are, are are moving in a tough direction, and uh, and I, and I find it interesting that um, I was talking to Sylvia about the chosen uh, before uh, class today. And uh, she mentioned, you know, well, they, they change some of it and depart some from what the Bible did. And I said, yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I said, that was my understanding. I, I know that like some of the disciples, they add in backstory and personalities and things like that. And I said, you know, and usually I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to those because you had a really good story to start with. You know, why, why change it um, is, is the idea. On the other hand... This is not the first series to have done that. Um, The Testament of Job is before the New Testament. So the idea of kind of pushing things one direction or another is not entirely new, uh, even for uh, devoted people of faith. Well, we're not going to do that today. We're going to uh, stick with the text as we have it. Uh, but we'll start off with the Job of the prologue. Now we, we've met him many times at this point. Uh, if you wanted a, uh, a term to put with Job, now i I might go for the word denial, but let's be more generous and say stoic, okay? So uh, stoic, there's a a difference between stoic and uh, in denial. Uh, Job 1 uh, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. That's that metaphor. If you weren't here the first time, that metaphor might not make sense. Because, you know, it's, this is not Nicodemus. How, how, how will I go back into my mother's womb? He, he's using this as, um, on the one hand, to talk about his mother. And then, uh, naked shall I return there, referring to the grave. Um, and so that's the metaphor that he came from his mother's womb. The other womb to which he will go is the grave. Uh, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So it's a, it's a wonderful sentiment uh, it, just, it may not be the sum total of all that Job will say. Uh, a little bit later in Job chapter 2, uh, Job says to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not the bad? And so here in this, uh, this opening prose prologue to the book of Job... Job is stoic, he is accepting, and the the truth is this probably is the original form of the story of Job. That the the way the story probably went originally is that it was just the prose part that you have at the beginning and the end, and so uh, here we have Job, he's he's afflicted, and he says, nope, we, we take the good, we take the bad, he's afflicted, we say, nope, you know, praise God, and then it's probably the friends, who play the role of, of what currently is the role of Job's wife, um, and say, well, you ought to just curse God and die, and Job refuses. And so we, we come to what now is way over in chapter 42, but probably originally was, was chapter 3, if that's the way we'd like to think of it, where uh, God fusses at the friends and says, you haven't spoken rightly concerning me as my servant Job has, and then Job is restored back to uh, his former former position. It didn't take long, though, for someone to do a rereading of Job. And the very first re-reading of Job is the insertion of those 39 chapters of poetry that are in there. And thanks be to God that they did, because they made it an infinitely more interesting story by separating the, the prose at the beginning and the end, sticking in those 39 chapters of wrestling and, and saying... Well, as Lee Corso might say, not so fast, my friend. And, and so we get 39 chapters of them saying, well, not so fast. They're, I think there's some issues here that we need to talk about before we jump ahead to the and they all lived happily ever after uh, component there. And so early on, they, uh, they supplemented those. And it now is, is no longer just a story about this patient saint uh, who, uh, you know, ended up uh, being restored. But instead, my, my argument is that the book of Job turns into a, a very long thought experiment. And I, I've, I've put my cards on the table. I did it the very first Sunday that I was here. I think Job is essentially a parable. Um, that there, there probably was a historical figure named Job who suffered greatly. But the story that we have is, is a story that's a thought experiment, which is what a parable is. It's a thought experiment based off of the story of Job. So if it's a thought experiment, well, I mean, think about other parables that you know of. The, the most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was a thought experiment. Because it's, it's in response to the question, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus says, well, let's think about that. Who is your neighbor? And then he tells this story of, well, you know, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this guy passed by, and this guy, and this guy, but this guy stopped and helped him. And you notice how Jesus kind of turns the tables on him. At the end, he says, so who was a neighbor to the man who was in distress? And you see how that flips it around? Because at the first, it was like, well, you know, uh, who, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus said, well, I think maybe you ought to think about this a different way. Who ought you to be a neighbor to? It's a thought experiment. There is no there is no good Samaritan, just like there's no guy who gets beaten up. Now, of course, there's always somebody being beaten up, and always, hopefully, somebody who's a good Samaritan. But that's a thought experiment. The story of the prodigal son is a thought experiment. That's you know, we use the word parable. I think for modern culture, thought experiment actually fits better because we can connect with it a little bit more. What is the thought experiment of Job? This is—it's just this is—it's my conviction. What would we do if God were to act outrageously? Now, look, I stipulate on the on a long, you know, on the long view of time. I don't believe that God acts outrageously. In the moment, God certainly seems to act outrageously. It, it doesn't always feel as if God's actions in the present moment are the way that God's actions ought to be. It's, there is a reason why we as Christians believe in the afterlife. The afterlife is a statement of faith saying, the way that this life works out the scales of justice are not always balanced. if God is just he must ultimately balance those scales so there must be a world to come in which he's going to do that, that that's the whole reason why in fact if you if you trace the biblical literature you can see uh, there's a there's a wonderful line about the book of um, it's not Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. Uh, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes that says that this is the last wave of belief crashing against the shore that, uh, no, that uh, uh, ceases to have a belief in the afterlife. In other words, uh, what the, which that line I've just butchered, um, it was much prettier when I first read it. it the idea is that um, this is the last gasp of a belief system that doesn't include the afterlife in it if you read the book of Ecclesiastes you can figure out what the person is struggling with what is the point I have amassed all this wealth and I'm going to leave it to my knucklehead children and who knows what they'll do with it <laughs> we, we can relate to this in some respects can't we I mean it's, or or you know you take it a bit further and you can get, Boy, you can get much deeper on this topic. I'll ask my students sometimes, how many of you know the names, the, the given names of all of your grandparents? Almost without fail, they'll know all of the names of their grandparents. Now, some of them have to think a little bit because they've only called them by like their pet names. Um, and so like my mom, uh, she, when she became a grandmother, she just declared, I am too young to be called grandmother or grandma or anything like that. So her uh, pet name is Maggie. Um, and so if you asked, especially like my, uh, my youngest niece, you know, what's her real name? Oh, <laughs> Maggie Leonard <laughs> would be probably what she would come with. And I would say, okay, how many of you know the given names of your great-grandparents? That number declines by half because they may know the pet names, for their great-grandparents. And that number's probably up there in the 80-90% range. But how many of you know that? And then, and this is where it gets really hard, how many of you know a given name of any of your great-great-grandparents? And the answer is almost always zero. It takes three generations for us to just disappear from even the memory of our own families. This is a sobering thought. This is what Kohelet is arguing, or not arguing with, but wrestling with, is that if this is all there is, what's the point? Why be good or be bad? Why be righteous or unrighteous? What's the point of being wise or foolish? Oh, I guess in some sense he would say it's better to be wise than a fool. But it's just marginally better if once we die, that's it. And that's, his, that's what he's wrestling with. He says, who knows whether when we die our spirit goes up to heaven rather than down to the earth. Who knows whether our fate is better than the animals? He says, but God, you've, you've played the worst trick on us because you've set eternity in our hearts. And yet we don't know if we really have eternity in our souls. As we live on, that's what Kohelet is wrestling with. And it's, it's this last gasp. It's a wave that has crashed up on the shore and is starting to recede back of a kind of theology that no longer incorporates. Not, not no longer, but has yet to incorporate the afterlife. From this point, we begin to say with more and more conviction, there simply has to be a world to come because God is a just God. And as a just God, God is going to balance the scales of justice. If he doesn't do it in this life, he'll do it in the life to come. The afterlife is the ultimate statement of faith uh, in God's justice. The the prologue and epilogue by themselves, if we were to limit ourselves to just that version of Job, we, we might get the idea that stoic acceptance was the only right response to God. I question that, though, because I I think we we could go to the exemplar par excellence, Jesus, and say, is Stoic acceptance the only thing that even Jesus did? Jesus' prayer in Mark is, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. I think the prologue, might remove the words, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, (laughs) and they might just say, Your will be done. It's a much shallower prayer, frankly. If all that Jesus does when he's in the garden is there are no tears, there is no sweating drops of blood, there is merely Jesus saying, Your will be done. That's not who Jesus was. That is not what Jesus said. I think just that prose, prologue, and epilogue might remove the words that Mark and Matthew have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They might turn it into just the more uh, placid kind of death that we find in other gospels like, well, this is John. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. How much more calm than what we find in Mark. In Mark, Jesus dies with a scream and not just with a simple, it is finished, and then bows his head and dies. You almost get, with with this balance of Mark and John, the prose prologue and the poetic dialogues of the middle of Job. This first re-reading of Job forces us to go deeper into the book. The Satan had argued that if uh, Job's blessings were removed, then Job would curse God. And Job is just determined that he's going to throw everything for a loop because he curses, but he doesn't curse God. And then once he's finished cursing, he turns over to lament, which is a thoroughly biblical approach when one is going to be uh, complaining about how things are going. Job curses the the day of his birth, the night of his conception. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man child is conceived. That day, let it be darkness. May God above not seek it, may light not shine upon it, may darkness and gloom claim it. May clouds settle upon it, may a blackness of day terrify it. That night, let darkness seize it, may it not join the days of the year, may it not enter the number of the months. Yes, that night, let it be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those who bind day curse it. Those ready to stir up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light. And And why is that? Because it did not close the doors of my womb and hide trouble from my eyes. What a curse. He curses the day of his birth. He curses the night of his conception because they allowed him to be born. And then he begins to turn to God with a series of whys. Why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the belly and perish? Why did knees receive me? Why breast that I should suck? Why wasn't I buried like a stillborn child? Why does he give light to one who is miserable, who long for death but do not find it, who rejoice to exultation and are glad when they find the grave? Why? is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in. As you can imagine, Job's friends, who sat there in silence for a week don't like it when Job finally does begin to, to talk. I, uh, I, I think of uh, one of, I think, the most humorous places in the Bible is when, I, and I, I've talked to, to you all about this passage before, but uh, at the uh, announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Um, you, you know, there we have Zechariah serving inside the temple, and an angel from God comes to him and says, You know, your wife, uh, Elie she's going to conceive. And it's not Zechariah's greatest moment when, when he says, Well, how shall I know that these things shall be true? And you just, you almost want to imagine, I, of course, I have no idea what the thought life of an angel is like, but you, you just go, Well, no, Zechariah. Say, how about maybe God sent an angel to appear to you inside the temple? Maybe we can start with that. That might be a way that you would know this. And then my way of putting this is you know, Zechariah, if this is how we're going to do with the whole talking thing, maybe we'll just take a pause on that one for a while we'll we'll just take a break on the whole talking thing and sure enough he can't speak until uh actually gives birth nine months later and of course he's been saving up and so when he does speak he delivers just the most wonderful song there but there 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 are a few places in the Bible where you get just a hint of a sense of humor. Maybe it's just me uh, seeing it there when it's really not supposed to be, or maybe it's just because my sense of humor is warped enough that I see it when it really isn't there. But that is one that kind of strikes me that way. The friends, they they don't like it when Job sta- starts talking. They would just assume he'd be silent again. Or if he's going to speak, they want him to say something different than what he says in chapter 3. What they want is for Job to admit his guilt. Now, we're going to talk about the friends in some detail next week. But the, the friends are going to be the voices that say, you're getting what you deserved. In fact, Job, you may be getting off easy. That you, your sin is so great that you're not being punished as much as you deserve, is what the friends will tend to say. They say, Job, you, you ought to understand God's silence as just a a representation of his inscrutable wisdom, that his wisdom, oh, that that he would show you his wisdom, for wisdom is many-sided, is what uh, Zophar was going to say. You, You just need to accept that. Job, you just need to submit obediently. What's fascinating, is that that's largely the depiction of Job? That if you if you really look at the way that you know whether it's the Septuagint or or certainly by the time we get to the Testament of Job, when we get to the Church Fathers, when we get to um, the uh, the depictions of Job in uh, Gregory the Great's Moralia, that this is Job, and and you can just tell. And I have to pick on you Presbyterians a little bit, um, Calvin was irresistibly drawn to the messages of the friends because they've just made perfect sense. I mean, that you know, of course, Job, there is no one who's innocent. What's that word? Total depravity? I think some of you have heard this before. One of my great moments, it was just my, my brother was in the midst of an argument with someone over what TULIP stood for. Um, some of you, you know, who are deeply enmeshed in Presbyterian thought, have done this one before there. And he said, and he's got this on speakerphone. And he's like, "Aren't I correct that it's the flower, it's tulip, and that's what it stands for?" And I, it was just an, an epiphany. I said, "Well, no, it's it's twelve points, and it's rhododendron." And I just started listing off, just I just like made up terms. I did not know in advance that rhododendron had twelve letters. It was just purely a God thing, you know. It was just. Touched in that moment. Well, the, the tea in tulip is total depravity. You can see how one might chafe at a three-time proclamation in the, the, the prose introduction to the book that he's upright, blameless, fears God, and turns away from evil. That doesn't, it doesn't sound very tea ish in that respect there, and you can see how you would be pushed toward a different sort of view. We, we largely do side with the friends in church history when we are characterizing Job. But Job will have none of it. He is not going to agree with the friends. Job chapter 6, verse 13, In truth, I have no help in me. Any resource is driven from me. Those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. He's talking to the friends there. My companions are treacherous like a torrent bed, like freshets that pass away, that run dark with ice, turbid with melting snow. In time of heat they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. It's a great metaphor because what he's describing the friends as is they're like streams. Many of y'all have been to Israel with me and you have seen places where we're out in the desert and you'll see a line of greenery and and there's no water there and you go how how in the world you know do these poor plants survive there it's because at some moment there's a flash flood that happens because upstream somewhere it has rained and here comes the water well now you're a wandering bedouin and you're you're short on water and you're saying you know th- there's that stream over there let's go check there and you go over and it's not the rainy season anymore. And that stream has dried up. And Job says, That's what y'all are like to me. Your fair weather friends. Your friends who, well, you're like a stream that I can't count on. Sometimes you're there, but then the heat comes and you disappear and you leave me with nothing. Job says in verse 24 of that same chapter, Teach me, and I'll be silent. Make me understand. How I have gone wrong. How forceful are honest words, but your reproof, what does it reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words as if the speech of the desperate were wind? You would cast lots over the orphan and bargain over your friend. Now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Turn, I pray. Let no wrong be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any wrong on my tongue? I haven't done this. Your accusations fall flat. I need your help. And all you're giving me is reproof. Job is going to lament to God with the words of most profound lamentation that the scriptures contain. Uh, truthfully, they, 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 they may be the most profound words of lamentation that any human being ever composed Job 6, oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balance, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. That's why my words have been rash. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Oh, that I might have my request. That God would grant my desire, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my consolation. I would even exalt in unrelenting pain, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? He says, God, I've had all I can take. I, I, I'm just a I'm just mortal and you're crushing me with pain that I can't bear. God, just end it. Job 7, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye that beholds me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so those who go down to Sheol do not come up. They return no more to their houses, nor to their places know them anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now, not every audience is privileged to have been walked through God's battle with the sea and the dragon as you enlightened people have. And the seven people who have read my book, Creation Rediscovered, now on sale at... uh, remaindered bookstores everywhere. Um, it, uh, it, this, he says to, uh, to God here, "Am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? It's an odd line. I love you pulling that one on my students because they're like, I don't, I, what does that mean? <laughs> Just give me time. Um, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. What an image. We've all had that moment when we are racked with some kind of tension or worry and we say to ourselves, you know what, I'll, I'll just, if I could just fall asleep, then I'll, I'll be able to forget it. And it visits us even in our sleep and we have nightmares about it. God, I, I, just, I try to just go to sleep to escape from what you're inflicting upon me and you chase me down even in my sleep. I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. What a prayer. This is Job's prayer to God. Leave me alone. Wow. For my days are a breath. See if you catch the illusion here. What are human beings that you make so much of them? It's Psalm 8, isn't it? When I consider the heavens the works of your finger, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Job asked the same question. What what is man that thou art mindful of? What are human beings that you, you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? Will you not just look away from me for a while? Leave me alone so I can swallow my spit. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why don't you just pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. These lines of Job, they they go on and on, and they're filled with just such images. Uh, They're haunting images. I was at ease, he says in chapter 16, and he broke me in two. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and shows me no mercy. He pours out my gall on the ground. He bursts upon me again and again. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth upon my skin and laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Deep darkness is on my eyelids, though there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure." Wow. You can see why the friends didn't like it. (laughs) These are they're scandalous words in many respects. In fact, I I think they're scandalous enough that there's a reason why they're in Job as opposed to in the Psalter. That these are these aren't the kinds of words that you can just bring up in the ordinary course of worship. They 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 push the boundaries too far. These are these are words that are set aside for special occasions kinds of words there. It's important that they're there, but they're not, they're not everyday language, frankly. Um, The, uh, these are, they're the the sorts of laments that you have to break the glass in case of emergency uh, kind of laments that are there. One one of the things that's so interesting, and it fits with the title of this uh, particular session, is that Job increasingly begins to use legal language in his discussions with God, um, it, it's often the case in Scripture if you if you read through that um, God will use la- uh, legal language, or the prophets uh, will use legal language when they're talking about the sins of Israel, and so they'll kind of set it up as if it were a court case. Uh, the the technical term there is it's called a reeve, uh, R I B, but you pronounce that B as a V there. Um, And and so uh, I'll give you just one example. This is Psalm 50. Uh, God calls to the heavens above and to the earth, in other words, as witnesses, that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. There's our judge language again. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now that language there and what he's about to get upset at Israel about, or or he's already upset, what he's about to charge them with, is that they have gotten it into their heads that God needs them as much as they need God. And you've all heard the expression, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, That's the psalm where this comes from. Because what he says to Israel is, if I were hungry... I wouldn't ask you for food. (laughs) I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need you to feed me. Because see, that's the danger of when uh, when you build the temple. You sort of subtly get it into your mind. I've built a house for God. God lives there. When I do sacrifices, I'm feeding God. Well, if he doesn't bless me, I might hold off on the sacrifices. And he'll go hungry. And you look at it and you go, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Take a look at the myths around Israel. That's what they think. Uh, When there's the Babylonian story of the flood, they've killed all of the people, and so now there's nobody to offer sacrifices, and the gods are starving. And so when Utnapishtim, the Babylonian Noah, offers sacrifices, this is not the most noble kind of image that you'll find for deities. It says that the gods gather around the sacrifice like flies. It's... It's because they need the sacrifices as much as, as the people need the gods. Think about uh, with Odysseus. Remember when Odysseus wants the oracle about the future? And so they dig a hole and they start slaughtering the, the animals there and the blood goes in. And the, the dead come up to eat from the blood there. And he won't let them have it until Tiresias will give him the answer that he wants there. This It's the same kind of image there. God says, you have misunderstood <laughs> the nature of my divinity. <laughs> I'm not like them. We both have the name God, but we are not the same, um, is the way the Bible would treat this. It's a court case in this example. What's fascinating is, really, for one of the only places in the Bible, Job will turn the legal language toward God. He says in Job 10, Yet these things you hid in your heart, I know this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. You notice that word acquit there, it's a legal term. If I am wicked, woe to me. If I am righteous, well, the word wicked there is guilty and the word righteous is innocent. Reread that line there, if I am guilty, woe to me, but if I am innocent, I cannot lift up my head. I am filled with disgrace and look upon my affliction. Job is moving the debate away from some sort of abstract concept of, you know, like sinless perfection and over to the arena of the court where he's saying, I'm innocent in this case. I'm not guilty. Whatever I've done, I haven't done enough to merit the punishment that's being inflicted upon me. Whether I'm innocent or not, though, I'm still condemned by you. Bold as a lion, you hunt me. You repeat your exploits against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. I'm innocent, but you just keep attacking me. He says in Job 19, God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Even when I cry out violence, I'm not answered. I call aloud, but there's no justice. This is justice in a legal sense. And Job is going to expand this. In fact, I think these are probably the most troubling verses in Job, is when Job branches out from his own particular situation and begins to think more generally about divine justice. These are the words that are perhaps the toughest why are times not kept, this is Job uh, 24, why are times not kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his days? If we uh, were to put this in the, the words of Sting, Father, of Jesus exists, then how come he never comes here? Or if you want to be comical about it, I think I've told you this little anecdote uh, of my uh, my mother-in-law who was a kindergarten teacher. Um, and uh, as a good kindergarten teacher would, told her kids to wash their hands so that they could have snack time. And this little kid says, well, why do I have to wash my hands? And she says, because of germs. And this little guy says, germs in Jesus. It's all I ever hear about and I never see either one. <laughs> so. <laughs> my, gr- my mother-in-law actually has a, uh, a little placard in one of her, uh, her uh, bathrooms at her house that says, uh, it, Wash your hands and say your prayers because germs in Jesus are everywhere. <laughs> is the way that it goes. Um, the wicked remove landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the orphan. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the needy off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves like wild donkeys in the desert. They go out to their toil. They have to scavenge in the wasteland food for their young. They reap in a field that they don't even own. They have to glean in the vineyard vineyard of the wicked. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They're wet with the rain of the mountains. They cling to the rock for want of shelter. There are those who snatch the orphan child from the breast and take his pledge The infant of the poor, they go around naked without clothing. Though hungry, they carry the sheaves between their terraces. They press out oil, they tread the wine presses, but they suffer thirst. From the city, the dying groan, the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayer. That's his line. He looks around and with clear-eyed (laughs) perspective, If I'm going to use that word, I should be able to pronounce it, perspicacity. Um, he looks around and says, I'm not the only one suffering here. They're praying to you, God. Where are you? Why aren't you answering their prayer? Job says in chapter 9, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the eyes of its judges. If it's not him, who is it? This is where Job is reaching his nadir as he's struggling with these issues of divine justice, not just in his own life but in a more general sense. You can see why the friends don't like it. <laughs> you can see why the church didn't like it. Job wants a trial. Job begins to demand a summons with God. He begins to say, for, for example, again in verse 9, the, the, the problem is he, he, he wants to appear before God, but he knows that if he does, God's going to just run circles around him. He says, how can I answer him? Choosing my words with him, although I am innocent, I can't answer him. I can only appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I don't believe he would listen to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He won't let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a contest of strength, he is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. You you see what Job is doing. In fact, I think I've probably used this illustration with you all before when uh, talking about the Psalms. You ever had that moment where uh, you remember when, when you were a teenager and you were arguing with your parents about something and you were wrong? And you knew you were wrong. And you just couldn't shut up. You're just, you know, you're just, you're, you're just digging that hole even deeper with every word that you say. And you almost have this out-of-body experience where you're looking at yourself and you're going, Oh, would you just shut up? Would you just stop it? You just, do you not see you're making such a fool of yourself in this moment there? And, and, and you know, your, your kids did it to you just like my kids did it to me. It's like, really? That's your argument. Please go back. I might even agree if you'll just go back and think better and bring a better argument than that in here. It's just, it's one of, but there were other moments when you were right and you just couldn't get the words to come out right to make your point. And Job says that with God, how am I going to argue with God? I'm right but he's going to end up being proved right. If I summon God, (laughs) he's not going to listen. He's just going to prove me perverse. He concludes, I am blameless, but I loathe my life because I can't get these words to come out right. Job is seeming to ask the impossible. In fact, it's a step beyond the impossible. What Job is asking for is absurd. It is absurd to imagine that we could call God to account, that we could call God to, 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 to a summons before um, the, the bar, that we could somehow you know, go up to him, you've been served, and, and then he has to show up. What, what would that even look like? How can we do this? Valentine, in his book, he, he cites the, uh, the wonderful example. I'm sure many of you have seen this. Uh, if you've seen the movie uh, Amadeus, it's based off of the play by the same name. You remember that uh, the, the character, the F. Murray Abraham's character, Salieri, at the beginning, what he is is he's someone who says, I will devote my, my talent and my fidelity, my chastity to you if you will only make me a great composer. And he gives him just enough talent to be a mediocrity. And then he has to see this Mozart This profane, perverse clown of a character have this talent. And and what what so hurts him is that he recognizes in Mozart incarnation. In other words, this is a talent that is divine. It's the actual embodiment of God. And in whom does he embody himself? In this callow kind of person here. And so what does he say? My only reward, my sublime privilege is to be the only man alive in this time who clearly recognizes your incarnation. Grazie. E grazia cura. Thank you. Oh, thank you again. Thank you. Far be it. <laughs> or He says, so be it. From this time, we are enemies, you and I. I will not accept it. From you, do you hear? Now you hear those lines and you say, Well, Salieri, I don't care how mediocre you are and how wonderful Mozart is, that's absurd. What, what do you mean? Why, why would God even notice you to, to imagine that you could be God's enemy there? It, it's quite silly, it, it's absurd. Now, some of you know a somewhat perhaps less cultured but also quite good uh, example of this from Forrest Gump. Lieutenant Dan, you remember when Lieutenant Dan, there are no shrimp that are there to be had, and so he says, well, you know, I'm going to clean up Lieutenant Dan's language, Uh, where's this God of yours? And uh, Far says it's funny Lieutenant Dan said that because right then God showed up, and you remember that's when the storm uh, sinks or or comes, and Lieutenant Dan is up there, you know, sort of where the crow's nest ought to be, and he said, "You'll never sink this boat." You remember that uh, that line there? <laughs> now me, I was scared, <laughs> but Lieutenant Dan, he was mad. <laughs> Come on. You call this a storm? Come on. Other words I will not say in a church, it's time for a showdown. You and me. I'm right here. Come and get me. You'll never sink this boat. Now in that scene it's comical, but it is equally absurd. Who is this legless war veteran perched at the top of a crow's nest on a boat to imagine that he could take on God in that way. It's absurd. It's equally as absurd as Salieri or perhaps as Job. What I find innocent, not innocent, but uh, interesting, is I wonder if to some degree, God has not invited this kind of response. Uh, Hear me carefully. I, I don't mean that he's acted outrageously enough that he has it coming but that he's carved out space, to some degree, for his creatures to approach him in this way. If we read the creation story of Genesis 1, then Solieri and Lieutenant Dan and Job are just wildly absurd. This is a God who sits in divine repose and just says, Be and creation flies to obey his will, to challenge this sort of God, is absurd. But then on the other hand, to pray to that God is absurd. Why would one imagine that the God who just says, let there be light, and there is light, who speaks the world into existence, could possibly stoop down far enough to have any interest at all in us. That is as absurd as challenging God to a fight. But Genesis 1 isn't the only creation story. Genesis 2 is the older creation story. And when Genesis 1 was written, they didn't get rid of Genesis 2. They prefaced Genesis 2. So that now we have this this tangle, this balance, between the God of Genesis 1 who says, Be... And creation exists, and the God of Genesis 2, who makes a man out of dirt and breathes in his nose and plants a garden and makes the the woman out of his rib and comes and walks with them in the cool of the day and asks questions. This is a different picture of God, and yet somehow God has allowed both of these pictures to exist. In this particular case, Job is innocent. It's, we're not talking about the kind of suffering that we, we can't quite you know, get our heads around like tornadoes and you know, disease and things like this. This is a very specific example where God admits that he's innocent and still allows the Satan to take him on. And he, God says that he does it for nothing. This is the kind of behavior that deserves pushback. And so Job is pushing back here. In this particular case, Job stands in good company. We can think of other people who pushed back, like Abraham. Now think about one particular moment. I'll I'll close with this one. Remember when God has determined that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This is one of the most fascinating passages in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 18, because you remember Abraham, he's going to bargain with God in that passage. What I find so fascinating is the way the passage starts. (laughs) This is what God says. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? That's one of the most ludicrous lines in all of Scripture. This is the same deity who says, you know, you know who, who am I? Who has served as my counselor? My ways are higher than your ways. And here he gets ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and says, should I really do this without consulting my friend Abraham? It's like, what are you talking about? You don't ever consult with anybody. He says, no, I need to talk to Abraham first before I do this. This is a God who is condescending to our level and saying, let's talk. He's giving Abraham the opportunity to fight for justice. And think about how justice, legal terms, populate Abraham's argument. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That is a very Joban kind of line. He's standing up to God and saying, God, you can't do that. That would be wrong. The judge of all the earth has to do what's just. These are legal terms. And he said, well, where does Abraham get off doing such a thing? God asked him to. God was the one who came to Abraham and said, I'm not going to do this before I give my creature the chance to call me on this. I want my creature, Abraham, to have the chance to discuss this with me. Is this not what the incarnation is all about. God bringing himself down to the level that we get to talk to him. It is the same thing that is embodied in the person of Jesus. There's a, a, a minister one time who, when dealing with the problem of innocent suffering, said, well, it's only happened once, and he volunteered. It's a good lie. Is this true? Because there's only been one truly innocent person who suffered, and that person volunteered. And yet, it misses the larger point, doesn't it? Because even that innocent person in the midst of his suffering said, Why? Why have you forsaken me? Isn't that to some degree what Job's prayer is? I am not... Sinlessly perfect. But I don't understand why this is happening. This is not the cry of a blasphemer. This is the cry of someone who says, God, in fact, Job says this, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. You're not getting rid of me. I'll keep lamenting even if I have to say things that push the boundaries. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Job. Boy, it is a troubling book. But Lord, I thank you that it causes us to explore difficult passages of our own lives and bring even those before you. Take us by the hand and lead us through this, I pray in Jesus' name.